Faith Alive Ministries, if you wanted to put a label on us, you know, they call us Word of Faithers. We're all about the Word of God. I have grown up with this book, and I love this book. Uh, there is no, there's no book, no piece of information that's more important to me than the Bible. So, with that, we're gonna, we are gonna get into the Word tonight and learn some things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll we'll jump right into this tonight. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us, to lead us and guide us into all truth, to bring us closer to you through the revelation of your word. I thank you that ears are open to hear from you, hearts are open to receive from you, eyes that have been closed to the truth of the gospel are being opened by the precious power of the Holy Spirit. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to scoot this thing out just a little bit because otherwise I can tell what's going to happen is that I'm going to back up and catch myself on that wall. <laughs> and uh, I am a believer, but if I bang my elbow, we want to make sure the first words out of your mouth are not something you shouldn't repeat in church, right? <laughs> Praise God. I heard Brother Copeland talking about that one time. He'd, he'd come back from a trip, and this is back in kind of in the early days of his ministry when Gloria was at home with the kids, especially during the school year. And so she'd been home. He'd, he'd been out on the road preaching. So he'd spent the last several nights in a hotel room and he gets home. And while he was gone, Gloria has rearranged the furniture. And some of you may be familiar with the old Dick Van Dyke show routine where Dick comes into the living room and just trips headfirst over the ottoman that has been moved into the way. Well, Kenneth wakes up in the middle of the night, gets up to go use the restroom, and there is a chair or an ottoman or something that wasn't in his path from the bed to the bathroom previously, and now is. He says, I caught that thing with all four toes, and I just knew I'd broken something. And the, the, what his, his whole point in telling the story was this. It's the law of first words. When something like that happens, what is the first thing you say? When you're, you know, when you're doing something, and I've had this happen to me. You know, yeah, the, the first words out of your mouth are usually not praise to God. And they need to be. They need to be. He said, here's where first words are so important. He kicks that thing. He says, the first words out of my mouth were, by Jesus' stripes, I am healed. You know, when you when you get yourself so full of the Word of God that that's all that comes out. We're going to talk about some things tonight. As For about the last close to a year now, right out of a year, I started this about the 1st of uh, 2016. And I've been talking about nine things that you need to know to live in this world. The original title was Nine Things You Need to Know to Live in This World. Dad added the term abundantly because Faith Alive Ministries is all about teaching God's people to live the abundant life that God has for them. I'm not talking just about money. There are some people who have just astronomical bank accounts, but they're not living an abundant life. There's something else wrong in their life. They don't know Jesus. Without Jesus, you're just existing. But Jesus said, John 10.10, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they might have and enjoy life to the full till it overflows. 
That's amplified. The King James says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So we're all about teaching God's people how to live an abundant life. In addition, one night we were over at Cushing, and I was sharing this same sermon, the same message with some of the inmates at that facility. And the word that just kept coming up repeatedly over and over over the course of that sermon was that these are things that you needed to know to live effectively in this world. Because we're all about, again, living an effective life. Because if you don't know these things, if you don't know this word and you don't know how to live an effective life, you wind up in the same patterns, the same things that got you where you are now. The same things, that's why we see so many instances of people that... They get in trouble, they go to prison, they do their time, they get out, and a few months later they're back in because they didn't learn how to live effectively in this world. Or they're going along, and because of trouble and because of things that happen while they're inside, the sentence just keeps stretching and stretching and stretching and stretching. We don't want to see that happen. We want to see God's people learn how to live an effective, abundant life. That means prosperity in every area, that you are prosperous in your spirit. That's why the number one thing you need to know, we've, we've gone over several ways. I'm going to focus on one of the later ones tonight, but we have gone over these previously. We'll touch on them all briefly now that I have about 20 minutes longer to share with you than I normally would. Um, but number, the number one thing you have to know is this. You've got to know Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, then the music is just upbeat noise. It may make you feel good for a few minutes, but if you don't know Jesus, it's not, it's not going to have any eternal significance to you. You can, you can exist without Jesus. There are a lot of people around the world doing it every day. They wake up in the morning. They get out of bed. They go through their routine. At the end of the day, they go back to bed. Wake up the next morning, do it all over again. And it's just one day after another after another of just existing, of just putting in time. People have jobs that they don't enjoy doing. And so they're just going to work, putting in the time. They don't want to be there. You can tell if you look at them, they don't want to be there. And I'm not talking about just being one of these unnaturally upbeat, cheerful people, the ones that you just want to knock them over the head with something. It's like, calm down. But if you know Jesus, Jesus came to give us abundant life. Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus came to redeem us to himself, to God, to his Father, so that we could enjoy the life that God has planned for us. Number two, and like I said, I'm going to touch on all of these very briefly. Number two, you have to know and understand the authority and the integrity of the written word of God. There are places that call themselves churches around the country and around the world that have lost that have lost the faith in this book. They think it's just another, I heard one so-called preacher actually say that it was just another ancient book with some good moral principles, some good things you could learn from it, but that it was flawed, that it was was the product of human minds. No. What you have to know, number two, you have to know the authority and the integrity of this word, that you can trust this book from cover to cover. If you cannot trust the written word, if you cannot trust the word on paper, then you have no basis to trust the word made flesh because you wouldn't know anything about the things of God without this book. 
And so if you can't trust the book, you can't trust that what you think you know about God is accurate. Even if you're hearing things in your mind, hearing things in your spirit, you may think you're hearing from God. I was at a concert, goodness, 20 years ago, getting, getting close to 20 years ago. Some of you may be familiar with the band Skillet. They're a well-known Christian rock band that has had a lot of success in the secular market as well, packing out arenas around the country and around the world. When I saw them in the late 90s, they were playing high school gymnasiums. So it was they were they were brand new, just they'd been on the road for a year, year and a half, something like that. And John's wife Corey had just joined the band as their keyboard player and backup singer. And John looks at the audience full of high school kids and says, "All right, if any of you guys think you're hearing from the Lord that she might be the one for you, she's not." She's mine. And so if you, don't, if you don't know the word of God, then when those voices, when something comes to you, it may sound good. But if you don't know the word of God, you can be, you can be deceived because the enemy will come to you and he'll say something that'll sound good. But if you know the word of God and you start listening to your spirit, your spirit says, that doesn't line up. What about this? And the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you by revealing the word of God to you. So as I said, this is big. This is why... We've gone over this a couple of times. I know I've preached on the authority and the integrity of the word in this facility at least twice, maybe three times, but several times. You have to be able to trust the word of God. Because of that, because you can trust the word of God and because you can trust what the Bible says about God and about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, you can know this, and this one's big. Dad could have made this number one on his list. As I, I may have mentioned this, I know I've mentioned it in here before, I did not come up with this list. I borrowed it from my dad. But this could be the biggest one, but we, we went through one and two to make this, to get to this point, that you have to know that God loves you individually, not just as part of the world. There's a lot of people in this world that don't even know Jesus. They don't even care anything about the things of God, but they've heard John 3.16. They've heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So even people that don't know Jesus think, well, God loves the world. That's where you get this idea that we're all God's children. No, not if you read the scripture, you find out that we are all created by God, but there's a difference between being created by God and being in the family of God. But as a child of God, and even as, even as someone who's not a child of God yet, you have to know that God loves you. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus did everything he did. He did it because of his love for us. As, as believers, when we, when we worship God, when we go to God in worship and praise, it often comes up this idea, and it's, and it's an absolutely truthful idea, that this is all about you, God, because we love you. The Westminster Catechism says this way, the chief end of man is to glorify God and, and to enjoy him forever. So from our perspective, it's all about God. But we were in a service one night. Dad's told this story. I know Dad told it in here at least once, but that's been many, many years ago. But 17, 18 years ago, right about the time we started in this prison ministry, the church we were attending at the time was in the middle of 
a 14-month revival. We were in church Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. That was the point we got rid of the Sunday night service because we figured, okay, five services a week is enough. But we were in one of those services, and we were singing a song that some of you may be familiar with, that Passion did a few years back, called Jesus, Lover of My Soul, not the one by Hillsong, the other one that says, it's all about you. It says, it's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you. For your glory and your fame. Anyway, we were singing that song. And we'd, we'd sung through the chorus and through the verse. And the band was playing. And it was one of those instrumental times where things are just kind of flowing. And as Dad was standing there in worship, the voice of the Spirit came to him. says, you're right, it is all about me. But from where I sit, it's all about you. Everything that God does... Yes, it, yes, God brings glory to himself. Everything he does brings glory to himself. But everything he has done on this planet, he's done because of us. He created us because he wanted fellowship. He created us not just to worship him, although we do that, but he created us to, to have an object of his affection, an object of his love. And it's because of his love toward us that we love him. John said it this way. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God because he first loved us. I could spend a lot of time on this. One of my favorite quotes, Max Lucado says this, If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Now, God doesn't have a refrigerator, but what he does have is he has us engraved on the palm of his hand. Isaiah 49.16 says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I believe, I believe that when Isaiah wrote that in Isaiah 49, 16, that this was a picture of what happened when Jesus went to the cross for us. Now, after the cross, after his death, burial, and resurrection, we know that after, after he rose from the grave, when he appears to Thomas and to the other disciples, we know that he has the marks of those nails in his hands. Well, every time Jesus looks at his hands, he sees the mark of the love that he has for each and every one of us. As I said, not just as a part of the world, not just as a number on the rolls. The Lamb's Book of Life, he's not just putting names down by numbers until he hits the magic number, and when he hits that number, he closes the book and Jesus comes back. It's all about getting as many people in because he loves us so much. Because of that, because we know God loves us, this dovetails right into the next one. This is one of my favorites of the whole thing, and I spent some time on this in here a few months back. You've got to know what comes from where. Know where your troubles come from. Know where good comes from. One minister said it this way, God is a good God. The devil is a bad devil. The two of them are not working together. You have to understand. We read it. We, we quoted it to begin with. But John 10.10, 10, again, the thief comes only in order. So these are the only things that Satan comes to do. If it doesn't fit into one of these three categories, it didn't come from the devil. The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and to destroy. So if you see somebody being blessed, that didn't come from the enemy. Now, that being said, we know this. We know Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. Paul told us that. We know that he is a master of deception. So there are things that he will do that may look good momentarily. 
That's why there's so many ungodly, wealthy people running around. Because the enemy has funneled money, funneled resources into their hands so that they can do what he wants them to do. But it's designed to eventually steal from others, kill others, destroy others, and destroy the people that he's working through. On the flip side of that, the enemy comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they, that's us, may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. So, good comes from God, bad comes from the devil. Please don't get it confused. I've... There is a, there's a man that I spent several years sitting under his ministry. He was a strong man of God, and I learned a lot from him. Then several years ago, he just his, some things in his theology flipped. He's still a man of God. He's still a preacher. But he lost sight of the fact that good comes from God, bad comes from the devil, and if it's bad, it did not come from God. He, get, he got this idea that, well, whatever happens must be God's will. <laughs> you and I know better than that. I know that being extremely, extremely nearly to the point of blindness, nearsighted. I know that's not God's will. God didn't create me to be nearsighted. God created me to be the image of his dear son. That means spirit, soul, and body. That means perfectly healthy, perfectly whole. That's the will of God in my life. So I know better. <laughs> and uh, it, it wound up causing some division with this, with this brother. We, we still see each other on occasion, but we don't have the fellowship like we used to because we're not only are we not on the same page, sometimes I'm not sure we're even in the same book. <laughs> okay. Moving on. So we know what we know good comes from God, we know bad comes from the devil. Number 5 on the list, you've got to know how to walk in love. You've got to know the love walk. Because everything that God does, everything because God is love. If you look through this book, you're going to see that God is love. That's why he sent Jesus. And that's why when Jesus was here, he did what he did. Jesus came, John tells us, to destroy the works of the evil one. Why did he want to destroy the works of the evil one? Because the works of the evil one were destroying his people. Jesus came to reverse the plan that Satan had for mankind. So, knowing that God is love. So everything we do must be motivated by love to glorify God and to bless others. Praise God. We know the, the entire Old Testament... The Old Testament, the whole Bible is full of stuff that the Word tells us we need to do. But the Old Testament, there are several books full of laws, full of rules that were given to the children of Israel that God said, do this, do these things. All of those things, all the things he told them to do were to set them apart to because of his love for them. But in the New Testament, Jesus sums up all of the Old Testament in this. Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 22, he says, somebody says to him, a, a lawyer or a teacher of the law says to him, teacher, which is the greatest, which is the great commandment in the law? The, by the great commandment, he says, which one's the greatest commandment? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, I know a thing or two about hanging stuff up. We, uh, as I mentioned to Gerald before the service, we got back just a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, there's something that mom and dad have been doing for the last eight or nine years, and that Melanie and I have now been able to do for the last two years is go down to Fort Worth in January for Kenneth Copeland Ministries Ministers Conference. It's three days of being surrounded with, I think they said registration was 1,800, which in an auditorium the size of Eagle Mountain Churches is packed. And wall-to-wall people, just packed full of ministers hearing from God. And one of the things that kept coming out from multiple multiple ministers, multiple uh, speakers during that event was get your house in order. And it was it was said in a spiritual sense of make sure you're living right and not not as a not as an act of condemnation because again these are these are ministers we're talking to not as a oh you better clean that up no just make sure you're on course with what God wants you to do. But we took this not only as a spiritual command, but as a physical command as well. When, when we had the fire, I know, I know I've talked about this, about four years ago, we had a house fire that everything we had on our property at that time was, was destroyed. Well, we moved into a, a new place, and yes, the place needs some work. There's some, there's some elements of getting the house in order that require actually you know, putting labor into it repairing floors and walls and electrical outlets and all that kind of thing. But on top of all that, we'd gotten slovenly. Some of you guys may know what that means. It means it was a mess. And so over the course of the last couple of weeks, I've been putting the house in order. We've both, we've both been working on this, but I've spent some time with projects that had been half done, you know, hanging speakers. So my surround sound system is set up and... We enjoyed that last night. Haven't done that in a while, but just sat down and enjoyed a movie. Cranked up the sound system and just had a good evening. But, so I know a thing or two about the way things hang. And if you're going to hang something up, it has to have the support. Well, Jesus says that these two commands, the command of love, number one, love God, number two, love others. And that number two, love others as you love yourself, which means, yes, you got to love yourself. We don't spend a lot of time on that one because really, quite frankly, most of us, even people who think they hate themselves, don't really. <laughs> most of the time. There's something in them that wants to live, wants to cling to life. No, I'm not saying that's true of everybody. And that's why he put it in there. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we need that. But everything else hangs on that. If we don't have that, I've got one speaker cable that keeps falling down because it's not hung properly. <laughs> because... I can't get the push pins where I want them. So without something to hang on, it falls. Well, without these, without the command of love, everything else falls. That's why Paul tells us over in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I do all this great stuff, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a tinkling brass, a clanging cymbal, I'm just noise. If you don't have love, you, you could... It is possible. If you look at the Old Testament rules, there's a, and there's a lot of them, but it is possible to go through life and not do those things. It says, 
don't kill anybody. Well, that's simple enough. Don't kill anybody. It says, don't commit adultery. Well, again, it's simple enough. Don't do that. There's a lot of it that, you know, physical, the physical act, you can, you can just apply sheer willpower sometimes and make it happen. But if you, even if you could do all that, if you don't love God and love others, then the rest of it, you wasted your time. If it doesn't glorify God and bless others, it didn't come from God. Now, I don't have it on my notes here. I had it written down. A statement that came to me as I was, as I was sharing this one night was this. God is love. So because God is love, it is not possible for you to be hateful and holy at the same time. So if you want to live a holy, God-pleasing life, if you want to live effectively in this life, if you want to live abundantly in this life, you've got to get rid of hatred. Somebody may have done something to you in your past. I, you know, Everybody has stuff that happens to them. Maybe it was something major. I don't know what each, what each and every one of you has gone through. But maybe you were abused. Maybe all these other things. Maybe you've been robbed and stolen from and attacked and lied about. All these things. And that happens. But if you harbor bitterness, if you harbor hatred in your heart, then you cannot live an effective life. You cannot do the things God wants you to do and have the things God wants you to have if you're, if you've, you're still bound up in that hatred, bound up in that bitterness. Because you cannot be hateful and holy at the same time. This is why you would do well to study over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Like I said, it, it, goes, through, it goes through a description of what love is and what love is not. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude or self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. One thing that I that hit me so hard about that, and it was really relatively recent, was love does not seek its own. Well, again, who is love? God is love. So if love does not seek its own, and God is love, then everything God does, and you start looking in this book and you see it, that everything God does, he does as an extension of his love. Even when we see the wrath of God poured out, even when we see the enemies of God wiped out, when the Israelite children were leaving Egypt, and they got to the Red Sea, and... Moses, upon the instruction of the Lord, raises his rod over the Red Sea, and the Red Sea splits, and the Israelites go through on dry land. And then the Egyptians follow them in, and the waters cover the Egyptians, and they're drowned. He didn't do that to the Egyptians because he hated them. He, that happened to the Egyptians because they, ste- because they stepped out of his pattern of love. He had, he had a love for his people. All the Egyptians had to do to be blessed was to act towards God's people the same way that God acted toward his people. But because of his love for his people, anything that came against his people was going to get destroyed. It's like, it's like this. I don't have children, but I know, you know I've been around enough people that have children. And I, I'm the same way about my wife. I'm the same way about my family. I love you guys. I love the people that are around me. I love the people of the world because God loves the people of the world. But if somebody comes into my house, somebody tries to attack my family, my wife, my parents, my brother, my sister, my family, 
they're going to get hurt. <laughs> it's not hate. It's love for my it's love for my family. And because of that love for my family, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to protect them. And that's what God did. That's why again the Egyptians were destroyed. That's why we saw we saw the enemies of God destroyed. That's why the Philistine army was destroyed when they came against the Israelites. Everything that God does, if you read it through the lens of love, all comes back to the love of God and his love for his people. That's why number three was so important that you got to know God loves you. You're on the love side of this equation. You've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which means you're not a vessel of wrath. We're not appointed unto the wrath of God. I'm not afraid of the wrath of God. I don't deny that it exists. It's coming. But because I love God, because God loves me, because God loved me first, and because I love God, I heard Greg Stevens say it the other night. I was watching a watching a broadcast on on television a couple of nights ago. And he says, "I'm God's favorite." I've heard Gary Savelle say that. They're both wrong. I'm God's favorite. <laughs> well, we can all say that. If you don't believe me, look over at John 17. Jesus says that they will know that you love them as you have loved me. <laughs> okay. The reason I say those things about myself. And the reason I can say them about you, if you're a child of God, and I, many of the faces in here, many of you guys, we've, we've talked before, you're children of God. Number six, you've got to know the power of your words. Know that what you say is what you get. What you say over your life is what happens. Your words will determine your destiny. They determine who you side with, either God or the enemy. And God said to the children of Israel in Numbers 14, 28, he tells Moses, all right, tell them this. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. Why did they, the children of Israel, the people that God loved, we talked about what happened when they came out of Egypt. He loved them. And so he delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh and wiped out their enemies behind them. And then they take a walk. Look at the map. It's not that long of a walk. I heard one time, I could be wrong on this, but I heard at one point that it is an 11-day journey on foot from where they were in Egypt to where they were supposed to be in what we now know as Israel. It's not a 40-year trip, but they came out and they weren't even across the Red Sea yet when they started whining. Why did you bring us out here to die in this wilderness? They just keep going. They keep whining. And God says, I love you, but what you say, what you say is what you're going to get. You've now stepped out of what I told you to do. God didn't bring the curse on them, but their own words, their own actions. He said, all right, this is what you've said. This is what you're going to get. Because you've said this, now you're going to die in this wilderness. And your children, who didn't speak evil against me, are going to inherit the promised land. So what you say, Jesus said this, Matthew 12, verse 34, red words win. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we go back to where we started. What happens when you sit up too fast and you crack your head on something over your head? I've done it. Usually the first words out of my mouth are, ow, that's an okay word. <laughs> it's okay. You just, you know, you banged your elbow. You hit your humorous, your so-called funny bone. And there ain't nothing funny about banging it. It's like, ow. So what's the next thing you say? Some of us have a tendency to um, wind up cursing. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Well, don't curse yourself. Don't curse your life by speaking those evil words over your life. 
speak the word of God over your life. You wake up and you roll out of bed and you kick the ottoman and you and you break your toes. You speak the word of God. By Jesus' stripes, I am healed. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. So you have to know the power of your words. That ties in with number seven, knowing how to use faith. Faith is a tool. It is directional. Hebrews 10.38 says, The just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The next verse says, But we are not of them that draw back. <laughs> oh, let's, let's look at that right quick. I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this one, but let's go over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And I, when I, I actually preached on this one last month at Eddie Warrior, and I kept backing up, and I'm thinking, you could back up to 1-1 without, without even trying. But book of Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to go to verse 23, and then we'll, then we'll jump over some things. Verse 23, let us hold, conf- hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, with that, let us hold fast the confession, then go over to verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. We'll get to that a little bit more in-depth when we get over to number nine. But you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little, a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. We have this on our letterhead and have for, goodness, 38 years now. Faith Alive Ministries has been in ministry since 1980. And on our letterhead for 38 years has been, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You can completely ignore that chapter break there. This just flows right into it. Now faith is. Here's what faith is. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. For, it by, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand. So if we're going to learn anything from the word of God, we have to, we're going to get it by faith. By faith we understand that the worlds, or ages, but that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, he starts talking about the people of God that worked and lived by faith. We call this the Hall of Fame of Faith. Verse 6, though. Without faith it is impossible to please God. If we're going to live an abundant, effective life, pleasing God, it's going to have to be done by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jeremy Pearson says it this way, God is and God gives. Now, most people don't have a problem with the first part of it. They don't have a problem with God is. Maybe they don't love God. Maybe they don't trust God. Maybe they don't even believe this book. But they have an understanding that there is a, one scientist called it, a first cause. So most people don't have a problem with the God is. The word tells us over in the book of Psalms that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So to, to claim that God 
doesn't exist, to claim that God is not, makes you a foolish person. I said it this way in one of our services one night and offended somebody. wasn't my intention. I'm not, I don't set out to needlessly <laughs> offend people, but if people get offended at the truth, that's honestly between them and God. But I said this, you would have to be an idiot not to believe that God is. I stand by that. I, should have, I probably should have used the Bible word, which is a fool. If you don't believe that God is, the word says that you're a fool. What most people have a problem with, and this goes back to the know what from where, what most people have a problem with is knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, knowing that God has good things for them. They may even think that, okay, God is good, but there's a step beyond God is good to God is good to me. There's a step beyond God is a rewarder. God gives good things to God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and I diligently seek him, so I qualify. That's where a lot of people, that's where faith is so vitally important. Because you can look at the natural world around you. You can look at the mountains and the trees and the sky and all these things around you. And without a lot of faith, you can think, okay, something had to cause this. Even if you want to go into a long, drawn-out scientific explanation, and I'm by no means am I anti-science, even if you want to get into that long scientific explanation, it still comes down to what caused it, what started it. So you can know that God is possibly without, possibly without a lot of faith. Where faith comes into play is knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, we have to know how to apply our faith in every situation. Jesus said this over in Matthew chapter 21. In verse 21, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, this is after he has cursed the fig tree on the way into Jerusalem, spoke nine words to it, no man eat fruit of you hereafter forever, and it dried up from the roots. But he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do that, but also if you say to this mountain, so faith is a tool. Here's how we use it. Here's how we activate it by knowing the power of our words. Faith in your thoughts. I can think, I believe, I receive all day. But if I don't speak it with my mouth, it's the words, it's the spoken word that puts your faith into action. Whatever, if you say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I'm going to skip over number eight because we're going to spend some time on it. I want to go to number nine briefly, and then we'll come back to eight. Number nine is that you've got to know patience. This is one that, as I said, I've told this previously, that has been difficult for me. I am naturally somewhat impatient that I want what I want. I want it when I want it. I don't like it when things don't go my way. But I have to learn patience. This is why he said over here, we looked at it just a moment ago, Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance. You have need of patience. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it, or count it all joy, my brethren, when you endure, when you endure and encounter various trials. We don't like trials. We don't like tests. We know they didn't come from God. Because he says here just a little bit later, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God tempts no man, neither can he himself be tempted. But the temptations, the tests, the trials come. That Greek word refers to pressure. 
you take something and you begin to apply pressure to it and you squeeze it. If you take a stack of papers and it's, as I was cleaning, I came up with a, I had a stack of mail, but it was just kind of loose. And then you take it, you just apply pressure to it. Maybe you put a book or something on top of it and you press it down. You put the weight on it. That's what that word trial has to do with. It's when the enemy starts applying pressure to your life. Well, again, the power of your words, especially the power of your first words. If you take something that is just chock full of something and you start squeezing it, if you take a ketchup bottle and if that ketchup bottle is full and you pop the cap on it and you turn it over and you squeeze it, ketchup's going to come out. Well, when the enemy puts pressure on you, what's inside is going to come out. And if you're full of the enemy's thoughts, if you're full of the things of this world, the enemy's pressure comes up and the words that are coming out of your mouth are, I don't know why this always happens to me or I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't understand what's going on here. But if you learn how to apply faith and you learn how to apply patience and the two of them go together, the pressure comes up and you say, thank God, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In this world, you will have tribulation. I've quoted this repeatedly, John 16, In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says. You will have t- trials. You will have tests. You will have pressure. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Amplified says, I have deprived the world of its power to harm you. When the pressure comes up, when the bills are due, when the bills are overdue, when you've got three repairmen and your car is broken down. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just throwing some things out here. And you've got, a, you've got an attack in your body and you don't, you don't in your mind know what you're going to do next. He says, I'm a child of God. Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. Greater is the overcoming power of God in me than the pressure that comes up against me. Now, when you're applying pressure to something, if there's no room to squeeze that pressure, there's no place for that for any of the air to go, there's no way of anything coming out, you take that same full ketchup bottle and you slam the lid down on it, then you try to squeeze it. Unless you can put a lot of pressure on that bottle, you're not going to pop that cap off. Well, if we're so chock full of the word, the enemy starts squeezing on us, and anything that does come out, the things that are coming out of our mouth are the things of God. But we're also able to stand up to that pressure because we've got something bigger inside of us. Now, that all ties back to number eight, and this is where I want to spend a little bit of time. I've been going for almost an hour, so I don't have a lot of time, <laughs> but I got a little bit of time. So, number eight, you got to know your identity. You got to know who you are. Here's, here's what happens somebody comes up to you and they ask you, Who are you? You usually give them your name. Somebody says to me, Who are you? Well, my name is Josh Merriew. What are you? Somebody may say. And what they're looking for usually is your occupation. What do you do? Well, I have a day job, I have a place that I spend 40 hours a week. But that's not who I am. Who I am is a child of God. I could give them all these things. I am the physical offspring of Lloyd and Debbie Maryhew. I am the spiritual offspring of my father, God. So you've got to know your identity. Let's do this. Let's go over to the book of 1 John. Oh, praise God. And we could spend a whole bunch of time on this, and we are going to, because there's a lot of things we can go into here. Over the next few months, Lord willing, 
the old saying was Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I don't care if the creek rises or not. Depends on what the Lord wants me to do. Out on the res, mom and dad might say Lord willing and the wash don't run. <laughs> they had to cancel a service recently because people couldn't get across the across the wash to get to the church. First John chapter three, verse one. Behold. Behold is a big word. We've talked about this. I, I enjoyed this. The the picture came up came up for us several years back. And that's this. Behold is a big word. It's a joyful word. Other translations have some variation. It's like, look at this. Pay attention, John is saying. And it's an exciting word. You don't see Winnie the Pooh's friend Eeyore saying, behold. No, this is big. Behold, look. Open your eyes and see this. Behold what manner of love. It goes back to not only God is love, but that God loves me. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Paul says it over in Romans. He says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by Christ Jesus. That word shed abroad. I love this picture that he's just pouring it onto and into us without paying attention to the size of the container. If you turn on a fire hose and you try to fill a 12 ounce glass with it, there's way more coming out of that hose than that 12 ounce glass has room to receive. Well, that's what happens when God, shed, God has shed abroad, he's poured out his love in our hearts. It doesn't matter how much room we have to contain it. it. It just floods us to the exclusion of everything else. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So number one, your number one identity, when someone asks you, who are you? What are you? It's not, I'm a prisoner. It's not, I've done these things. My number one identity, like I said, for me, I have, I have many things. I can say I am the, the child of Lloyd and Debbie Maryhew. I am the husband of Melanie Maryhew. I am the brother of Matt and Kristen. I can say all these things. But my number one identity is that I am a child of God. So that's your number one identity. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world can't understand us. The world looks at children of God and doesn't understand them. They don't get it. The reason they don't get it is because they don't know God. So they don't understand his family. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... He is to be revealed in us. This isn't just talking about a future event. This isn't just talking about the return of Christ to earth. And he's coming back. He's coming back soon. He's coming back quickly. I believe it may be sooner than we even think. I would be fine with it happening on my way home from service tonight. That'll be fine. I'm cool with that. (laughs) But this is talking about the revelation of Christ in us. Paul says it over in Colossians that the mystery that was hidden throughout the ages, but that has now been revealed in us, is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That same book of Colossians, he says that in him, that's in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, Jesus looking at his disciples and speaking to his disciples and speaking also to us, says that he and his father would come and make their abode, make their dwelling with and in us. So if in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he's in me, then in me dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I don't say that to be prideful, to be arrogant, because it's not about me. It's not about anything that I did. It's not because I loved him first. It's because he loved me. But because he loves me, one minister said it this way. When the enemy looks at us, 
And we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're walking in the love of God. We're walking in him and he's in us. The enemy looks at us and all he sees is God. Inside, we are wall to wall. God, this is, you, you've seen the pictures of, of the guy with the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other. And in a, in a soulish aspect, that's true. Because the, if the enemy can get our mind off of the things of God, he can't pervert our spirit. Our spirit's been born again. It's untouchable. But if he can pervert our mind, he can get us off of the things of God, and he can get us to do what he wants, wants us to do. But I am a child of God. If you realize your position as a child of God, it changes the way you live and changes the way you act. I believe the reason that the church, that people in the church, believers, people who love God, who if they died today, they're on their way to heaven, but the reason they still struggle with sin is because they don't have a revelation of who they are. If I'm in him and he's in me, Paul writes this Romans in Romans 6.11, Likewise you also, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says over in Ephesians, he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, yet he is made alive. By grace you're saved. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. I have been, past tense, it's a done deal, happened the moment that I made Jesus the Lord of my life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. The just shall live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am no longer my own, Paul says. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. That changes everything. When the temptation comes up, I heard, I heard Creflo Dollar share this once, and it, it blessed me. It made me laugh, but at the same time, it just it, it blessed me tremendously. And he talks about a man that came to the church there, gave his heart to Jesus, got saved. But this particular man was dealing with an addiction to marijuana. And he says, I don't want to do this anymore. I've given my heart to Jesus. I don't want to do this anymore. But I, I'm, I'm powerless to stop it. It's a psychological thing. He, he says, but I'm powerless to stop this. And Creflo says, Creflo looks at him and says, all right, here's who you are. The Bible says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's, let's look at that verse and then we'll come back to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is who we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. And matter of fact, with, with that, I think I'm going to go to a little bit more scripture than Dad actually had in the, had in the notes here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's, let's actually do this. Let's actually go up to verse 17, because this, again, this has to do with who we are in Christ. Therefore, if anyone, if any man, the old King James says, new King James says, if anyone, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. One translation says, a new species of being that has never existed before. His spiritual DNA has been imparted into us. We're no longer just old sinners saved by grace. You were a sinner. You got saved by grace. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You look up the word all in the dictionary. It simply says, leaving nothing out. All things have become new. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's another thing that we are that we could spend some time on. We are ministers of the reconciliation of God. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, not holding their sins against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, another thing that we are, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's big. That tells me that it is God's desire for each and every person on this planet to be reconciled to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have Paul say, we implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God. Here it is. Here's reconciliation. All you have to do is receive it. Jesus already did the work, the work of the cross redeemed us to himself. Now, all that is required of us is that we be reconciled to God. We implore you, we beg you, we plead with you to be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he made him, let's unpack this a little bit, for he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus the Son, him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Some modern translations soften that and make it a sin offering, a sin sacrifice. No, when Jesus was on the cross, he took on the sin of the world. He became sin for us. He took it in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our infirmities and our iniquities in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sin might live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. For he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for who? For us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So because of that, because of what Jesus did, now we are the righteousness of God in Christ. His righteousness has not only been imputed to us, but it's also been imparted to us. It's been placed on us. So back to the, back to the story. So Creflo looks at this man. He says, all right, here's who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. So every time, every time you get ready to spark up, I want you to just re repeat that. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Well, he does it. He, he goes home. He's been repeating this. Thank God, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. This, the desire hits him. He says, okay, I, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. He gets out his, he gets out his stash. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. He rolls one up. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. He gets ready to light it. He says, man, I don't want this. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. He throws it away, never touched it again. That's what happens. So you're struggling with sin. You're struggling with an addiction. Whatever it may be. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. You've got to know that your ability to be righteous isn't in you. Keith Moore said it this way, in you, there's four things that are true. In you, you are nothing. You're nothing in yourself. In you, you have nothing. Paul says, and Jesus said it too, what do you have that you have not received? In you, apart from God, you have nothing. In you, you know nothing. And in you, you can do nothing. I've quoted Brian Houston in here several times. I'll quote it again, that without him, that's without Jesus, we can do nothing. Most of us are pretty good at it. And he says, but with him, nothing is impossible. I, I, I've said this several times, that I see that as twofold. Number one, that with him, anything I put my hand to will prosper. Anything I attempt to do, as uh, Hudson Taylor said, William Carey said something similar, said, 
attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, that whatever I do will succeed because nothing is impossible. But it's also that with him, nothing is impossible. If I'm in, in him, it's impossible for me to do nothing. You don't just sign the rolls and float along and eventually make it to heaven. If he's in me and I'm in him, then his will must be done in my life. I mentioned this, and I'd, I'd forgotten. I had honestly not remembered that it was in the notes. Go over to John 17. Now, we've, we've spent some time in John 17 before. But John 17, while you're turning there, Romans 8, 16, and 17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Now, that's not talking about just being children. I'll, I'll, I'll use a completely physical example, and then we'll go to John 17. Many of you, you know, you, you're all aware that as of a couple of weeks ago now, a couple of weeks ago now, the United States has a new president, Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump has several children. One of his sons, Eric Trump, is, is his heir. It, he's the, the uh, I think it's the chief financial officer. He's, a, he's in a very high position in the Trump organization. Well, Donald Trump has another son, Barron, who is 10 years old. He's a child. He's an heir of Donald Trump, but he doesn't have the same access to the funds and the company. He's not yet a mature son. Well, this is, what God, this is what God is wanting from us. And this is why we're learning about these things that we need to know to be effective in this life. God wants to take us from being, the Greek term is technon, which is a biological child. He wants to take us from that position, from just being a child, being born of, to being, the word is huios, which the huios of God are adult children. They're mature. They're partners in, in, in the things of God. I and my earthly father, Lloyd, are, that's the relationship that we have. We're tied together in this ministry that we're, that we're in. That I'm his son and he's my father, but it's not, we don't have the same relationship that we did when I was a kid. Now I'm an adult. Now we can do things together that we couldn't do when I was a kid. And that's where God wants us. He wants to bring us to maturity. Now over here in John chapter 17. Now let's go. Let's go to verse, oh gosh, I could, I could back all the way up to the beginning of that one again, but let's go to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, because he'd been talking about his disciples, and it would be easy, and some of your Bibles may actually have a, have a subject break there, where earlier in the chapter it'll say, Jesus prays for his disciples, not a chapter break, but a section break. It'll, earlier in the chapter it'll say, Jesus prays for his disciples, and then, here above verse 20, it'll say Jesus prays for the world or something along those lines. All believers. All believers. There you go. I, I, I knew that one of, one of my Bibles that I had had that terminology in there. There's not a distinction here. That's why he says, I don't pray for these alone. Everything that came before that, that we think is was for the disciples, it's for us too. <laughs> I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Well, that's each and every one of us because we came to know Jesus either directly or indirectly, through what the disciples did. Most of us came, we came to the Word through somebody, we came to know Jesus 
through somebody preaching from the word of God that was written by these men. So he says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Well, for 2,000 years, the world has seen all these fragmented divisions of the body of Christ. This wasn't God's plan. Jesus says, they're one. Paul says, there's one church. There, there's one body. This is, this is not... This is why you know somebody asks you know what denomination are you? I, I I don't like denominational labels. I just love Jesus. Like I said, if if you had to put a, some kind of a descriptive label on us, the terminology "word of faith" is appropriate. Uh, charismatic. Um, I do have some Pentecostal background, but I just love Jesus. <laughs> Scott Wesley Brown said it this way: "I'm not religious. I just love the Lord." That that the world may believe that you sent me, the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's what I was saying. I'm God's favorite. God loves me every bit as much as he loves Jesus. But it's not because of anything I did. (laughs) I didn't do anything to earn his love. All I did was receive it. And it's available for each and every person on this planet. No matter what they've done, no matter how they've lived their life, God doesn't love me anymore because I'm a preacher's kid and I joke that I was born saved. I've never, I mean, uh, there's a there's been a lot of things that I've done that are none of your business because they're under the blood. But that's not, it has nothing to do with what I did or what you've done. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. Father, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. We call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We have to understand This is our identity. This is who we are. This is who we are, that we are one with him. He is in us. We are in him. That means we are where he is. Last verse. I thought I was done. We will close with this. Go to the book of Ephesians with me, please. Ephesians. And there'll be a couple of passages here. I will read them together. But... Since this wasn't in my notes, I have to actually turn to it. Ephesians, go to chapter 2. And again, I could read so much of this, but we'll just go to verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. So this is all because of his love. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, let's see where Jesus is. 
So he says, verse 6 there, he says, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just jump back up to where Jesus is, verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our fullness is in him. His fullness is in us. That's who we are. You have to know, you have to understand your identity. That you are in Christ and he's in you. Now, I'm done with that. If you don't know Jesus, if he is not in you, get to know Jesus. Don't wait. Like I said, I I recognize a lot of your faces. I I know a lot of you. you. I know you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus... Get with somebody. We'll be happy to pray with you. One of these other brothers will be happy to pray with you that you would come to know Jesus. Don't wait another day. Don't put it off. If you know and you understand how good God is, you want to be in him. You want him to be in you because that's the only way you're going to live abundantly and live effectively in this life. If I had a mic, I'd drop it because that is the way it is. Praise God. Didn't mean to drop that. (laughs) 